I'm pretty confident most of you know me, but if you don't or you're joining online, we, my name is Greg Veach. I'm one of the elders here. I'm filling in for Pastor Nathan today. Last time I spoke and had the, the honor of speaking before you was back in August, and I spoke about the greatest commandment. You know, I think I, think I left something on the table last time, because last time I got to the first part, loving God, and I left out the second part, loving others. And just by way of review for, for just a minute, the greatest commandment appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew and Mark, uh, it's placed in an area where Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's speaking to different uh, groups and they're each challenging him on a specific point. They're trying to catch him in, in, uh, in, in a question that he can't answer or trying to resolve something that that is of concern for them. And the first group that comes to him are the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they don't want to pay taxes to Rome, so they ask Jesus, should they pay taxes? And, of course, he gives that famous answer, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Uh, they can't catch him with that one. So the Sadducees, they want to give their, their chance. They, they think uh, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they are trying to trap Jesus and ask him, well, what about this woman who has seven husbands and she has to marry each of the brothers? Whose husband is she going to be in the afterlife? And, of course, he shuts them right down and says, well, it's not going to be like that. Uh, you, you've got it wrong. And then finally, when the, the last group that wants to challenge Jesus are the teachers of the law, and they say, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And from Mark, Jesus responds like this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, Mark says after this, no one asked him any more questions. And in Matthew, he goes on and gives one additional uh, segment where Jesus asks who the Messiah is. And then after that, nobody asks him any more questions. So it seems that Jesus has sort of put to rest any of these challenges that are coming from the people he is speaking to. And I think we need to keep in mind that these are not new teachings. Jesus is not coming up with a new new commands, he's, he's reiterating commands that are, have already been set down. And in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then the second part is Leviticus nineteen eighteen that says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus isn't giving a new command to the people who are hearing him. He's referring back to the Old Testament and is entirely consistent with his teachings about everything and his statement that he did not come to overturn the law but to fulfill the law. So he's consistent with the Old Testament teachings. But in Luke chapter 10, the companion passage, and maybe I have this wrong, I didn't bring my... Thanks for being with me there, uh, Stephen. I don't have the clicker. But in uh, 
Luke tells us in his, in, in his companion part to this gospel, or to the uh, greatest commandment, his, his section, he tells it a little differently. He's not, Jesus is not explaining to a group of people uh, uh, what, the, what the law is or what the greatest commandment is. This, in Luke, it comes right after he has sent out the 72 to prepare the way into the village he's about to go into. And he gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, Stephen, I don't have a clicker. If you could just follow me. All right. Uh, so, I'll, I'll read it. One, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know, when I read this, I thought to myself, specifically for me, but I think people in general, we're very much like the teacher of the law who stands up and asks Jesus about the greatest commandment. The teacher of the law can recite what he's supposed to recite. He can quote the scripture. But I think we see in the passage here that his heart isn't fully involved. He's missing the heart part of the scripture. And I think it's preventing him and maybe it prevents us from fully understanding what Jesus and what the Bible are trying to tell us. The second thing I noticed about that, because this is certainly true of me, the teacher of the law, I think, is looking for some wiggle room, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want that commandment to be fully true. He wants to be able to wiggle out of what Jesus has told him. Surely somebody must fall outside of the definition of neighbors. And certainly I believe that life is full of shades of gray. I don't, I don't want to be so rigid in understanding the laws, I want to wiggle just like the teacher of the law. So he's asking, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And in response, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And why is it important that it's a Samaritan? It could have been anybody. It could have been anybody that was beaten up and robbed and left for dead. But we hear about the Samaritan, and I think if we look closely, we're going to understand why Jesus is using the Samaritan. And so just by way of a little bit of background, uh, it's kind of interesting that Jesus says a man is going 
down from Jerusalem to Jericho when Jericho is north of Jerusalem on a map. You know, commonly we would say if I'm going to Glens Falls or Plattsburgh, hey, I'm going up to Glens Falls or Plattsburgh, that's north. But the reality is Jerusalem sits at 2,400 feet above sea level, and Jericho, even though it's only about 17, 15, 17 miles away, is 800 feet below sea level. So you quite literally are going down to Jericho from Jerusalem. In those days, there was a real road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was a real road that was notorious for being a haven of robbers. It was desolate. There were a lot of switchbacks on the road. There were a lot of caves and, and, and uh, ravines where, where robbers would hide. And Jericho was a rich city. It was a common event for travelers to be robbed on that road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So Jesus is telling this story to a teacher of the law who would understand that this is a real place. This is a real route to travel, and this is a real concern of people who are traveling on that road. It's real. The, again, the history and the scripture go together. Jesus isn't just telling this as some you know, sort of story for this guy to sort of think through and understand. He's the hearer of this, the, the teacher of the law, he would instantly recognize what's going on. But why a Samaritan? Well, the Samaritans were a, border, uh, a bordering people group. They, they lived uh, just north of Jerusalem in that area. The Samaria, the, the capital of that district, was where Omri moved the capital of Israel uh, several centuries before this Jesus telling the story. And Samaria was taken over. Well, the, when the Assyrians came in, they removed all the people from, uh, from Samaria. There were a few Jews that remained. And what they did was they took other people from their kingdom and they settled in Samaria as well. What happened was the remaining Jews started to intermarry with the, the outsiders, which of course was against Jewish law. And they started to take on some of the uh, traditions and recognize some of the gods from these other outside uh, people groups, and they built, built altars to their gods in Samaria. So the Samaritans, although they have a background of being Jewish, by the time, the, by the time Nehemiah comes back uh, and starts to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans are they're not fully Jewish. Uh, they don't believe any, any of the Bible past Moses, so they have the first five books of the Bible, but they don't have any of the, the remaining groups. They believe that Mount Gerizim in their territory is where the temple is supposed to be and not Jerusalem. And so about 720, when they're first exiled, by 4, let me see what I wrote down, by 445 B.C., when Nehemiah comes back, he reports there's some resistance by the Samaritans to their rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. In 130 B.C., the Jewish king comes down from Jerusalem because he's now strong enough. He invades Samaria and he destroys the temple at Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan's temple. And then in 9 A.D., when Jesus is just a little boy, some of the Samaritan, uh, some of the Samaritan men snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and desecrated the temple by leaving uh, uh, some bone, human bones. Uh, so understanding what was happening and that this is a Samaritan, the Samaritan 
would immediately be recognized by the teacher of the law and any other Jewish hearer as an enemy of the Jews. But in this context, Jesus is saying, the Samaritan is the example we are supposed to follow. And that's very hard for people. It's hard for me. It would be hard for, I think, anybody to follow the example of their enemy. And you can sort of tell how, how, how much animosity there was because if you go back and read the, the passage, when Jesus asked who was the guy's neighbor, he can't even say the Samaritan. He says the man who, who showed mercy to him. He says the man who showed mercy to him. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Now, I don't know if you have enemies that you can't bring yourself to say their name, but if we understand the context of just how much animosity is going on between these two people groups, I think it makes the passage and the parable that much more powerful. Because whatever it is that the Samaritan was doing, we're supposed to do that. Because the end is Jesus telling us, go and do likewise. Now this is, uh, some, some critics of Christianity would say, this passage is not truly Christian. That there are, there's a, this ethical principle outside of Christianity that Jesus is sort of co-opting and he's putting this into the parable. Uh, and what they would do is they would point to some ancient philosophers like uh, the Greek philosopher Thales. Around 600 BC, he says, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. And the Chinese philosopher Confucius, around 500 B.C., way, way before Jesus, he says, or he's quoted as saying, what you do not want others to do to you, do not do unto others. And then finally, 400 B.C., Isocrates, another Greek philosophy, philosopher, says, I like this one, what thou thyself hatest, do to no man. So this, this ethical principle that Jesus is, is teaching if you were a critic of the Bible, you'd say, wait a minute, that's already been something that people knew about. Jesus is sort of co-opting this. But I think there's a difference that we should note. All of the three that I quoted before were negative. They were saying, just don't do that. But Jesus' lesson in the parable of the Good Samaritan is do something. Proactively, go and do whatever it is the Samaritan did. We're not merely to refrain from doing something, right? If we don't want to get beaten up, then we just don't have to beat, we just don't beat anybody up ourselves, and then we're fine. We've met that standard. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you have to do something. The Samaritan did something, and we are to go and do likewise. So what does the Samaritan do? Well, I think the first thing we noticed, the difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite, uh, is that the Samaritan took pity on him. Now, that doesn't right out front seem like an action. It's more of a heart movement, but it's something. He does something. He takes pity on the victim that he sees on the road. And it's not mentioned that the others did. Now, maybe they did. Maybe it's just not recorded. But the priest and the Levite, Jesus' account is that they just passed by on the other side. No mention that they have any sort of heart connection to this person that they have come upon, this neighbor that they have come upon. He bandages him, and he dresses his wounds right there at the scene. Now, we think of like EMTs, you know, if we were envisioning this scene. He's getting down, and he's touching this other person who he doesn't know, and he's helping bandage the wounds, 
and take care of the person. He puts him on his donkey. He's got to pick him up, lift him up onto his donkey, and, and walks him to town. He took care of him overnight. Now, we don't have any idea what the Samaritan is doing. We just hear he's on a journey. But he's going to stop in the middle of his journey and take time to help this person that he has come across who's in need. He prepays the innkeeper two denarii, and we don't see anywhere in here where he says there's a limit. Like, well, here's two denarii, and, you know, you can keep them until whatever, you know, rate that is, two nights, three nights, five nights. He puts no limit, limitations and no expectations on it. And then he promises when he returns, he's going to pay the bill. And again, he doesn't say, well, he's, I'll pay for him up to X number of dollars. He just says, I'm going to pay the bill. And it brings to my mind the fact that this Samaritan probably is expecting this guy's going to be healed and gone by the time he arrives when he, on his way back through. And he's just going to foot the whole bill. He's not concerned if the innkeeper is going to try to cheat him out of any money. I mean, if the, if, the, if the victim in the story, if he gets better after two days, the, the innkeeper can say, listen, he's been here for two weeks. The Samaritan is not concerned with that. He's just concerned with doing something to help this neighbor that he has come across. You know, another thing I find interesting, knowing that the Samaritans were so, there was so much animosity between the two groups, and again, I don't know how many of us actually have this same level of animosity towards whoever our enemies would be today. But in the Bible, don't you see the Samaritans always being a part of Jesus' lessons and a part of Jesus' story? It's not just the Good Samaritan. We see that Jesus is traveling around with his disciples at one point, and there are ten lepers who are outside of town. He heals them all. and He tells them, go and show yourselves to the, to the priests and the in the synagogue, and, and only one person comes back to thank God for that blessing, a Samaritan. And then in John 4, Jesus meets, asks for a drink from the woman at the well, and, and she's blessed with being told directly by Jesus himself that he is the Messiah, a Samaritan. Not the teachers of the law, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees, a Samaritan woman he reveals himself specifically to. What a blessing that must be for her. You can only imagine it. So these Samaritans, they're, they're pretty well represented by Jesus' teachings and his, his actions. You know what it brings to mind to me? A different passage in Mark. I'm sorry, Matthew. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'll give you a second to turn to it, but I'm going to read it anyway. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have Matthew saying, or Matthew quoting Jesus saying, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, this is not a new teaching. We saw Leviticus 19.18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. It kind of sounds like there might be some wiggle room there. Like, 
Don't bear a grudge against your people, but maybe people outside of your group. But Leviticus 19.34, I won't read that, kind of expands that to include foreigners living in the land. So we already see Jesus' teaching not overturning what's already been established. But what about that part where Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? I've always found that myself a pretty curious passage because I don't recall anywhere in the Bible Jesus or God or anybody saying, hate your enemies. But Jesus here is saying, uh, you've heard it said, love your enemies and, and love your neighbor and hate your enemies. So where's that coming from? And I had no idea. I just thought it was, I couldn't figure it out and you know, like I said, it was a curious passage to me until Jen one day, a while back, got me a study Bible, and I happened to come upon the answer to that. And the answer is that that was one of the teachings of the teachers in Jesus' day. What they were doing is taking some of the Psalms, and they were interpreting that as being, it's okay to hate your enemies. And here, here they are, Psalm 31.6, I hate those that cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust the Lord. That sounds like Samaritans, honoring Baal and other gods. Psalm 119, 113. I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those that are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So, again, Jesus is teaching a real lesson to real people who are really believing that it might be okay to hate your enemies. But we're all looking for wiggle room. I'm looking for wiggle room. I've already I've said that. This is a difficult concept for me to grasp. There's a companion passage to, to Matthew's in Luke 6, 27 to 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So where does this leave us? Like the Samaritan, I think we need to have a heart connection to those around us. Even to our enemies. Even to those who curse us. And I could tell a story because this is how it goes for me. One day, many years ago, I was headed to the coffee shop and I had $20 in my pocket. And I get this great idea. I'm going to bless somebody who I don't even know. Right? I want to be a neighbor to people who I don't even know. And I look around and nobody's there. I'm like, I can, you know what? I can leave all my change for the next person. I don't even know who they are. It's going to be great. I can do it anonymously. This is, I'm just going to bless somebody else. Don't know. I'm, I'm sure we all have 
things that we're trying to deal with. I'm sure this person's going to have something to deal with. Maybe this can be a blessing to them. That's what's in my mind. So I asked the teller, hey, the, can you take the change and give it to the next person who comes? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's so nice. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself as I walk out the door. And as I do, the first person I see coming in the door is uh, somebody that I did not really care for. It was a person who was, I'll tell this part of the story, he was a tow truck driver. At the time, I was a policeman. The problem wasn't anything about him or about me. The problem was that at an accident scene, I thought I was in charge and he thought he was in charge. So we did not always get along. I didn't think he talked to the cops very nicely or to the people that were involved in the accidents. I generally had to wait a couple of days for my paperwork. So you see, now it's all turning back to me and this great, wonderful thing that I thought I was doing turns out I ended up having to bless my enemy and guess what? I was not happy about it. <laughs> so I'm stirring about this. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying up front as I did before, this is hard for me. This this command is hard for me. It's tough for me to bless people that I consider my enemy. And I'm stewing about this. I come home and I tell Jen, I say, you know what? Can you believe this? This is what I did. This is what you get for trying to be a good person and bless somebody. And you know, the only thing she says to me is, well, what'd you leave the money for? You know, Jen does that to me quite a bit. (laughs) You know, preparing for this message, it reminded me, I don't pray enough for my enemies. And you know, I try to, and it's hard. It's hard for me. Anyway, I hope it's not as hard for all of you, but preparing for this message reminded me, you know what, you have not been praying for your enemies. And then I try, and I don't always do a good job. You know, I'm, I'm sometimes uh, convicted or, or learn a lesson from the youth of our, of our church here. You know, I, little Chloe here caught my eye, and, you know, I've heard her pray, and I've said to myself, when I hear her, I'm like, man, that, I wish I could pray like that. That's like really powerful and really amazing. I'm like, how does that amazing prayer come out of that little tiny body? And it's just, it, it's amazing. And then in youth group, I recall the last time uh, Chloe Pargeron was, playing, was uh, praying. I'm like, man, I wish I could pray like that. And you know, our youth are, are sometimes dealing with, with enemies, real enemies, bullies. Even one of my own children, a few years ago, was dealing with a bully and, you know, was talking with it to Jen. And, you know, my initial reaction is if you got a bully, fight back, right? We, see, we hear that a lot. And my own son, Nathan, says, you know, I, I just think something's wrong. He's, he's, he's got to be hurt and he's angry all the time. And so he and Jen, man, they start praying, praying for this kid. And my hardened heart, it has no choice but to soften. But you know, it's not just our kids. Might I suggest that some of us, many of us adults, have a hard time not making that heart connection. You know, a lot of us will, if I judge by my social media feed, a lot of us are more interested in letting people know that they're wrong, letting them know that they're not on the right side, letting other people know that you have an enemy in me because I want to click that media post, that social media post on Facebook and really teach somebody a lesson. Maybe instead we should just be praying. 
you know, it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on or who you're going to vote for. It doesn't matter. You're supposed to pray for the other side. I don't think we see enough of that. Jesus' message isn't leaving us much wiggle room, is it? Am I really supposed to bless those who curse me? Am I really supposed to pray for those people who don't agree with whether I wear a mask or I don't wear a mask? I don't know. Am I really supposed to pray for a politician who's in favor of killing babies or using a pandemic for their own political gain? Are they my enemy? Do I really have to stop when I'm in a hurry and check in on that person on the park bench who looks lonely or sad? Do I really have to love my business competitor who's trying to put me out of business? My boss who I don't like? Do I really have to bless for and pray for a family member that I might have a broken relationship with? Do I really have to bless somebody who owes me money? My annoying neighbor? The drug dealer down the street? The men and women in prison? Atheists? I want to wiggle. I really do. But the greatest commandment's not going to change. As much as I might want a new translation to come out and say, you don't have to go and do likewise, it's not going to. I'd like the parable at the end to say, you know what? Go and do what's comfortable for you. That's what I wanted to say. But it doesn't. Go and do likewise. You know, it's not just the Samaritan, it's Jesus. Jesus did something for us, right? When we're sinners and we are enemies, he pays the ultimate sacrifice. He does something for us. I just want to leave you with this. If you struggle with this, you're not alone. I do as well. I wish my heart was much softer towards my fellow man. If you think of it, maybe pray for me that that will, will happen for me. Maybe I need to do one of those 30-day challenges where I just pray for my enemies because I can make a long list of people that I love and want to pray for. If they're traveling, if they they're, they're have health problems, blessings for the people that I love and they're near me, uh, but I can't make a long list of my enemies to pray for. So disperse and be the church.